everybody. Welcome back. The Travel Addict here, also known as Malcolm Teasdale. Today, I've got something a little bit special for you. I travelled recently to a land that many people have heard of, but have no idea about how to get there. What I'm talking about is the land of Tibet, specifically capital city, Lhasa of Tibet. Now, many people think that Tibet is a country. Well, that's incorrect. It's actually an autonomous region of the country of China. To get there, well, it's not that easy. So I'm going to describe my experience in getting there and also my experience while I was there. If you want, you could read about my experience in Lhasa Tibet in a chapter called A Little Closer to Shangri-La. It's a chapter in the book, Planes, Trains, Taxes, and Tuk-Tuks. You can find details of this book on my website, malcolmjtsdale.com. Of course, you can always find it on Amazon. I'm going to give you the sort of a brief version of that story because there is quite a lot to tell. Firstly, you have to get a permit to go to Tibet. It comes in two parts, really, and you've really got to do it in this particular order. I contacted a travel company in Tibet to apply for a permit. What they advised me to do was first apply for a visa to go to China. But do not mention that your intention is to go to Tibet. Seems a bit strange, doesn't it? But that's exactly what I did. So when I filled in the visa application form to send to the Chinese embassy, I specifically said I'm going to Shanghai and Chengdu. I did not mention that I was going to Lhasa, Tibet. And of course, my visa was granted. The second step was to go back to the travel company in Tibet, or Lhasa, Tibet, and say, well, I've got my visa now. What do I need to do to get my permit? And they fixed me up with all the information I needed to, to know and the paperwork I needed to have to actually get into Tibet. Now, a person cannot go there by themselves and expect to get it. You just cannot. It's pretty well still cut off sort of from the rest of the world. There's more to it than you think, though. China has a stronghold of Tibet to a degree, so you have to be cognizant of that. I'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. So my journey started from the long-distance flight out of Atlanta, Georgia, on Delta Airlines, a direct flight time to Shanghai. It's a long flight, of course, probably about 14 hours, but I did sleep plenty. The reason I decided to go to Shanghai, I've never been to Shanghai before, actually, so I wanted to go and see the city for a couple of days, and that's exactly what I did. So I arrived at Shanghai Airport. A bit confusing, the airport was, but you know, I managed to navigate my way through to baggage claim, picked up my bags. Now, the next step, because Shanghai Airport is a little bit far away from the city, I decided to find some transport to get me there. I had booked a hotel uh, quite close to the area of the Bund, close to the river in that great city. So instead of getting a taxi, which would have taken me about an hour or more to get there and cost me an arm and a leg, I decided, and I recommend this to everyone, take the world's fastest train. Yet yeah, it's actually there in Shanghai, runs from the train station at the airport to the city centre of Shanghai. It's the world's fastest train. It's called the Maglev train, built on magnetic technology, German engineering. 
So that train trip actually takes eight minutes. It's an easy decision to make, actually. One word of warning here, if you do go on that train, sit forward facing. Sitting rear facing may make you a little bit, I don't know, motion sickness. You might get a dose of that. You don't really want that. So anyway, I arrived in the city of Shanghai and then took a taxi to my hotel. I got there sort of late in the evening. There wasn't much to do, and I had to get a good night's sleep. Anyway, the next day, I just decided to walk around the neighborhood, enjoy the vibe, and the architecture in that city is quite unbelievable, actually, especially at nighttime when you see the lights across the ward from the skyscrapers flashing. It's like being in a nightclub, sort of. Anyway, I enjoyed my time in Shanghai. I did go and see the all-star jazz band, an iconic set of musicians who play in a hotel just down the street from where I was staying. These guys are all about 70 years old, and they play all jazz music. Yeah, they do hit a few bomb notes periodically, but it doesn't really make any difference. I was there just for the, uh, I guess, uh, the fun of it all. So anyway, I enjoyed the uh, town center or the city center of, of Shanghai. While I was walking along the street, this happened to me two or three times at different times during the day. A lady came up to me and wanted to spend the day with me, like go for coffee and just hang around with me for the rest of the day. And I thought it was rather peculiar. I don't know if you meant any harm by it. I thought it was a scam or something. But I decided in my own mind, ah, no, it just cannot be. But it happened, yeah, I think about three times. But I was too tired anyway. And I thought, well, no, I obviously can't do this. So I politely just declined. And that was it. Never actually experienced that before. Then I took the maglev train, the first train out of the city centre in the morning. I made it to the train station on time, and I got on the train and uh, took the eight-minute ride back to the airport. With my luggage, it was quite easy. I boarded a China Eastern plane, I think it was China Eastern, to the city of Chengdu. Now, many of you may not have heard of Chengdu, but it's on the western side of China, sort of on my way to Lhasa, Tibet. I wanted another layer over there because I wanted to be completely rid of the effects of jet lag before I arrived in Lhasa, Tibet. There's a reason for that because Lhasa, Tibet is about 12,000 to 13,000 feet high in elevation. There is a chance to get altitude sickness. Of course, I didn't want that. I did do some prep work before I left left my home, and that was to take some altitude sickness taps, and they ultimately helped me. I arrived in Chengdu, and I decided to stay sort of south of the city towards the airport. And I stayed, I believe, in a hotel called the Renaissance. I I can't remember the name of it, but it actually was quite good. So I checked in there and just walked around, but I didn't realize the city was absolutely massive. I can't remember the population, but it's huge. That evening, I found an Irish pub which I always do when I go to a city overseas somewhere, because there always is one. Rarely have I been to a city that does not have an Irish pub somewhere. So I found the pub, went there, and had a typical British male sitting outside. It was quite enjoyable, and that pretty much it. I had to get a good night's sleep. Now, the next day was quite fulfilling, actually, and was packed with an activity that I never thought ever I would do. I went to the Panda Rehabilitation Center. It's famous in Chengdu because pandas, I would say they're not a dying breed, but they don't breed too well. And there's a reason for that. 
Anyway, I had to find all about it. So I took a taxi to this rehab facility. And it's like a big park where there are pandas. And they just seem to, to just live there like they would in the jungle or the forest. It's like being in the forest, actually. Chengdu authorities have done a wonderful job in trying to keep the panda population going. They seem to be either sleeping or eating. And the diet is most exclusively bamboo. Well, bamboo has very little nutrients in it, which is why they're probably sleeping most of the time. What the vets do at the rehab center, now I don't know if they're called vets, there may be some other name for them, or be panda doctors or something like that. Anyway, they feed the male pandas a cocktail or a sort of cake which has these vitamins in to try and make them attractive to females. And sometimes they even put two pandas close to each other, put a female panda in between them, hope to sort of have a spat between them. Well, it's very challenging, but sometimes it works. And they do have a birthing facility at the rehab center, and they have incubation machines there, which is really good. So there are some successes, but generally speaking, it is challenging. They're doing the best they can to keep the population of pandas in China alive and well. Of course, pandas are sort of black and white, cuddly things, aren't they? You just want to go up to them and cuddle. But they are active sometimes in the day, and that's usually after they've eaten. So you can see a couple of them wrestling in one of their pens, which is quite adorable, actually. Well, in addition to the normal pandas, which we're used to seeing, there are the small red pandas. Yeah, red pandas, they exist. A little bit different they are because they tend to be a little bit more, so less cute, if you wish, and more aggressive, which they're not really aggressive, in fact. So they exist there as well. So anyway, the panda rehab facility does a wonderful job in taking care of their precious commodity. I spent a few hours there, and then I headed back to my hotel via taxi. And funny enough, the taxi driver started to charge me more on the return journey than the outbound journey. So I had to take an issue with that. And I told him, and he did speak a little English. Anyway, we negotiated a price, uh, which I thought was fair. And I got back to the hotel in one piece. I don't know what made me do that because it was just a dollar or two. But anyway, my attempt to do the right thing, I guess. Anyway, I last night in Chengdu at the hotel and uh, went to the Irish pub again. I was going to eat some hot pot, which is a national dish of Chengdu, which is very, very spicy. But I thought better not to do that because I had a flight earliest the next morning. That time came and was up, checked out, and the taxi took me to the airport for my flight to Lhasa. It is where the big adventure begins. It's not a long flight, but anyway, I got there in one piece, and uh, I was in Lhasa to bed. Now, one thing that struck me about Lhasa Airport is that it was quite modern. So I got off the plane, but there are many checkpoints in Lhasa because they want to make sure that you have to have the right permits and visas to be able to actually leave the airport. If you go there and you do not, then unfortunately you're going to be turned right around. But the airline does a good job of checking people anyway when they get on the plane. But, you know, sometimes things fall through the cracks. I got a taxi. I went to my hotel called the House of Shambhala. Now, the word Shambhala is a mythical kingdom hidden somewhere in Inner Asia. Whenever the historical basis, Shambhala gradually became to seen 
as a Buddhist pure land, a fabulous kingdom whose reality is visionary or spiritual as much as it is physical or geographical. Look like an old Tibetan guest house. Small boutique hotel, if you wish. There are probably only about 10 rooms in the whole building. My room was pretty basic. It had a stone bathroom floor, some charming artwork and furniture in prominent red and gold colours, which is what I would expect. It was dimly lit, but it created this like an authentic but spooky atmosphere. I felt like I was a guest in someone's house, actually. It was cold and had no central heating, so I thought, well, they maybe have given me a hot water bottle or something. Anyway, they did have an electric heater that was absolutely sufficient to take the chill out of the air during the night hours. With regards to internet, there was service, but it was quite poor. To be honest with you, I didn't expect much. China has locked down access to many websites, including many of them that are social media related. Google, there must have been some spat in the past there. Google is not allowed there. So I could not get access to my mail, which I use Gmail. Google Maps is also not accessible. So I couldn't get email from home at all. I did have a backup, which was Yahoo. Somehow that works there. I'm not sure the reason why. Now, Tibet has additional websites locked down to prevent outside interference and influence affecting the local people. That's the last thing they want. To be honest with you, not having good internet service was the least of my worries. As quaint as my hotel was, the food was a different story. On recommendation from the travel company I booked the trip from, I did not drink any alcohol that night, so I just drank water. Drinking alcohol would have made me more prone to altitude sickness. Makes sense to me. Anyway, for dinner, I had some sort of curry and rice. I say some sort of because although it was supposed to be chicken, I could not say for sure that it actually tasted like one. Maybe a Tibetan chicken is a little different sort of animal than the rest of the world. Who knows? There was some confusion when I ordered my food, brought on by the language barrier, of course, because as well as my some sort of chicken, curry they also bought me a yak curry now i wasn't ready to taste yak at this time mainly because i saw a few of them roaming around the rice fields on the journey from the airport to lhasa city and what i saw was a scruffy ugly animal so based on that you know i wasn't in the mood to try anything on my first night one of the recommendations from my travel company was not to take a shower on the first night that sounded a little bit unreasonable because they said it could bring on altitude sickness as well. I did not take their advice on this. So after waiting 10 minutes for the water to warm up, I basically cleansed myself off and felt like I was ready for a good night's sleep, which in fact never happened. Actually, I never had a good night's sleep all the time I was in Lhasa, which is another symptom of altitude sickness. Knowing beforehand that I was going to be at high altitude, I came prepared with some tablets that I found on Amazon, which I believed helped me to a degree. Now, during my tour of Lhasa and Tibet, I was on this tour group, and out of our group of 10, four of them had to visit a pharmacy for some medicine to combat their altitude sickness. It's not pleasant. Obviously, the pharmacy keeps this stuff around because visitors or tourists like ourselves need it. Anyway, it fixed them up, so we were pretty much good to go after that. I did, however, have some symptom of altitude sickness. When I got back to my room after the first day, I felt a little bit dizzy. 
That's normal. It lasted about two or three minutes, then it went away, and I never experienced that again during my stay. Breakfast in the morning was limited. There was cereal, white bread for toast, and eggs, which were cooked by an old Tibetan lady on a small griddle with just enough space to cook two of them at one time. I did, however, have four cups of tea that went down really well, and I was ready for the day ahead. Everyone in our tour group met at 9.30 a.m., at the hotel where most of the group stayed, it was only a short walk from my place, which was just fine. But before we were on our way to a place called Drepung Monastery in a comfortable minibus. Drepung Monastery is known as the most important and newest monastery of Gelugpa, which is a university of Tibetan Buddhism. It is considered one of the three great monasteries in Lhasa, the other two being Gandan Monastery and Sera Monasteries. Seen from afar, its great white construction gives the appearance of a heap of rice. As such, it was actually given the name Drepung, which in the Tibetan language means collecting rice. Would you believe it? Apart from the teachings of Buddhism, other academic subjects are taught, so collectively it is where students aspire to attend. At one time it housed 10,000 monks, but today is only about 300, 300 of them live there. This is due to regulations enforced by the Chinese government. Unfortunately, as you may already know, there is a jaded past when it comes to Tibet and China. And one thing that was stressed by Passang, the gentleman who was our tour group leader, was never to engage in political conversation with anyone except within our own group. Saying anything blasphemous about the Chinese government could actually land you in jail, which was enough reason, I guess, to keep a mouth shut and just enjoy the sights and the education. Aside from the political issues, which we were aware of, Passang also told us not to give money to the beggars, even the ones with mothers holding their babies. It seemed a bit strange to me, but we were told it was a bit of a scam, as these people do actually have money and typically live on farms, but take to begging during low season when their work hours are reduced and revenue from their crops has declined for that period of the year. The mother with the baby is just a sympathy play, as people are more likely to hand over cash to them rather than to, to a man with his hand extended. Well, lunchtime finally arrived, and it was at a decent-looking restaurant, but we didn't know much about the food. Now, I did not want to eat a whole lot in fear of having the need to find a bathroom. The public toilet situation is not good in Lhasa, meaning it's hard to find them, and when you do, they're in poor condition and obviously unsanitary. All I had was a bowl of tomato and egg drop soup, plus a plate of French fries, which was more than enough, sort of a small lunch. A couple of our group drank a beer, which in my opinion was not a good move. Lunchtime drinking at altitude, at least for me, would make me want to take an afternoon nap. There's more to see, but not in a state of sleepiness. Next up was Sarah Monastery, which is located in the northern suburb of Lhasa City. The monastery was named Sarah, which means wild rose in the Tibetan language. This is because the hill behind of it was covered with wild roses in bloom when the monastery was built. During 1959, during that revolt, which was a major happening, it suffered a lot of damage and hundreds of residents' monks were killed. After the Dalai Lama took asylum in India, many of the survivors from that took refuge also in India. And with the help of the Indian government, a duplicate Sarah Monastery was built where it's still there today. And 3,000 monks 
live on premise at that monastery in India. Now, one of the high points of the visit to Sarah Monastery is the afternoon debate sessions by the monks out in the open. This was, in fact, a lot of fun. There are about 60 of them, mostly on a one-on-one basis, and there were other sessions where there's one on two groups. They were vocal, sometimes loud, actually, passionate, but expressive. They waved their arms to add more emotion to their opinions. Of course, they spoke in a language I could not understand. The subject matters were mainly philosophical, something along the lines of the classic chicken and egg debate or the age-old question of how big is big. Now, some debates could be more intense spiritual subjects like emptiness, which in fact could be a good subject of discussion back home after a couple of glasses of wine and maybe a few glasses of beer. Just saying. Funnily enough, there was a sign on the wall saying, in English, no photographs, but smartphones are okay. Suffice to say, everyone was taking pictures with their iPhones or other mobile devices. I even took a video with my GoPro camera. One may ask the question, what do monks do every day, apart from debating each other, that is? As with Buddhism itself, the answer is not straightforward. It basically depends on the monastery where they live and at what stage in their monastic career they are at. A typical day would start very early in the morning, maybe three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, with a session of meditation or group chanting. When the dawn breaks, they may set off on what we call an arms round into the surrounding area where the people live, where the non-monistic type people pay respects to the monks in order to feel connected to the spiritual realm. Much of the rest of the day is spent studying, teaching or performing ceremonial duties and whatever time may be left, they will meditate. That evening, the tour company had arranged for a group dinner at a restaurant, a sort of welcome to Tibet get-together, which in turn saved me from eating at my hotel. Also, based on what I saw nearby, my accommodation with respect to restaurants, nothing seemed appealing. Well, I finally broke down and I tried some yak. It was a bowl of stir-fried yak. And based on the fact that anything fried is generally good. I had to douse it down with a couple of local beers, and it was pretty darn good. And I think it helped me sleep a little that night. The entrance to my bathroom had a low door frame at about five and a half feet high. In the space of time that I had been there, I had banged the top of my head four times in the same area. I'd broken the skin, and it did bleed. It also hurt. Going to the bathroom in the middle of the night when you're half asleep thinking about not banging your head on a door frame is exactly not high on the list of, I must remember not to do this. I think that if I had stayed another night there, I would have finally knocked myself out completely and woken up in the Tibetan hospital. The next morning was to be the highlight of the trip. It was a visit to the famous Otala Palace. Now, our group met at 9 a.m. Now, just a little word about our group. There were 10 people in the group, and we were all from different countries. Everyone spoke English, so it was a good group, so we had lots of stories to tell. Anyway, we were told in advance to bring our passports with us as various checkpoints before entering this massive building. Not sure why, but I'm just, uh, I suppose it was a sign of authority provided by the Chinese military, because Patala Palace is the main tourist attraction in Lhasa, and possibly the Chinese want you to know that it's their property as opposed to Tibet's. Anyway, I wasn't there to judge. I was there to visit this awesome building. This was a residence of the Dalai Lamas through time. The most recent Dalai Lama, who's still alive, by the way, is a 14. 
He sought out exile in India during the massive conflict in 1959. Now, his predecessor, which was the 13th, believe it or not, is buried there and his tomb is visible to the tourists. About 1,600 people pass through the palace each day. And because some of the passageways are sort of narrow, cause bottlenecks, there are staff, including monks, to help usher people through. It's now a museum and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a precious place. With regards to the Dalai Lama, you've seen him on TV being interviewed. And if you have, you realize that he's sort of a likable person and that everything he said is meaningful, while at the same time, he has that genuine sense of warmth and humor. He's happy, which is a basis of the Buddhism religion. It says that happiness transcends wealth. He does not say that money is the root of all evil, but it has little to do with being contented in life. Words of wisdom, I think. Tala Palace sits elevated on hillside overlooking the city of Lhasa. And to get to the top, there are many steps to climb. It's not exactly a trek, but you've got to be in reasonable shape, especially when you're approaching 13,000 feet above sea level. The building stands 13 stories high, has over 1,000 rooms or chambers, 10,000 shrines, and 200,000 statues. Basically, it's a small world encapsulated in a single structure that boasts countless myths, historical events, priceless religious artifacts, artwork, and more gold than you could even imagine. The construction began in 1645 by the order of the fifth Dalai Lama at the suggestion by one of his spiritual advisors saying, hey, this will be an ideal place for government duties. Inside the building, there is some sort of spiritual atmosphere and some mysterious feeling that you'll notice of being somewhere significant and important. And you can only experience it by being inside. I remember one small room, there was a sign outside that said, women are forbidden to enter. And I was looking at it, and Passang was there, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, Malcolm, go in, take a look. I said, really? Yes, I go, take a look. So I climbed up the stairs and it was a small room. There was a monk in there. It was a monk's man cave. And the only clue as to why women may not be invited were cans of beer. Yep, I guess even the monks enjoy a cold one every now and again. Anyway, I had half a can of beer with one of the monks there. Uh, we didn't talk, obviously, but it was just uh, a, a neat experience in this holy place kind of thing. If you've ever watched the movie Seven Years in Tibet starring Brad Pitt, you would have seen screenshots of Patala Palace. The movie, of course, was never filmed there. They would never have been given permission to do so. And it was made many years ago. I think it was filmed mostly in Argentina. I can't be 100% sure of that. I think we were in there almost two hours before we left through the back door. So I got to see one of the world's most revered buildings. It was absolutely awesome. That afternoon, we visited Jokang Temple. Now, it was also listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it was in the year 2000, I believe. Anyway, it's part of the Patala Palace, actually. The temple is a four-story timber complex with a golden top. It's sort of a combination of Tang Dynasty, Tibetan, Nepalese architecture, so I was told. And every day, pilgrims come from every corner of Tibet to worship there. It's the thing to do. Outside the temple is a large square, Sitting there were two massive incense burners, and they were in full flow, spewing out clouds of smoke. I believe the smoke came from the smoldering juniper that was in these large pots. Bakor Street is the oldest street in Lhasa, considered the centre of the old city. It's a perfect place to experience Tibetan culture, the economy, religion and arts, etc. 
Blackwall Street is the best place for souvenirs. And you can even bargain. The shopkeepers expect you to. The stuff is really cheap. I just basically gave them the asking price anyway. But we hung around there for a while before heading back to our accommodation. That's pretty much the end of the organized tour. And our group was left alone to wander around the neighborhood a little bit before we were taken back to our hotels. Venturing outside this area was sort of discouraged, and it's sort of forbidden, actually. It's not a good thing to do. Anyway, I met up later with uh, three members of our group, a girl from Germany, a girl from the Netherlands, and a gentleman from South Korea. And we had dinner on the roof of the guest house where I was staying, actually. The roof itself was flat, but it was sort of high up, and there were tables and chairs out there. It was sort of a restaurant. Anyway, the view from up there was quite pleasant because we had sort of an aerial view of the whole city of Lhasa. Anyway, it was a good night. Elena, uh, the German girl, decided to go for a blind massage, and it's actually performed by people who are without sight. So it's not just a gimmick. The theory is that when somebody loses one of their senses, then the rest of them are enhanced to a degree at least. And this increased sense of touch enables the massage to feel and address problem areas more effectively. Well, it didn't do her any harm anyway, and she said she quite enjoyed it. Good for her. Well, that pretty much brought to an end my trip to Lhasa, Tibet. Awesome it was. If there is one regret I have, is that I didn't go on the excursion to the Everest Base Camp, EBC as they say. It was a long two-day drive, plus there was an overnight stay at the camp before heading back to Lhasa. The other three I mentioned who came to my hotel on the last night, they went on the trip and they said it was absolutely awesome. Probably I should have done it, but I had another agenda. I was going to Phuket of Thailand to do some scuba diving. I guess that piqued my interest more than going halfway up a mountain. Anyway, maybe I'll go back and do it one one day. I, I don't know. It was time to leave. So I was given the lift to the airport. I got on a China Airlines plane, which uh, stopped at Chengdu on the way before heading down to the city of Bangkok. It's just a couple of days layover in Bangkok before heading to Phuket. What a trip. Experience and enjoyment of my trip to Tibet stayed with me forever. It's a great thing to do. As I mentioned before, you can read about it. I have a chapter dedicated to it, a longer version of what I've told you about here. It's called A Little Closer to Shangri-La. It's in the book, Planes, Trains, Taxes, and Tuk-Tuks. You can find it on my website, malcolmjtsdale.com. And, of course, if you want to read it, feel free to go to Amazon, and you'll see it listed there. Just do a search on my name, Malcolm Teasdale, and it'll pop up with the rest of the books that are at the Amazon store. Anyway, thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to connecting with you sometime in the near future. Have a great rest of the week. Bye for now.